Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together to debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. The Rittenhouse trial coming to its conclusion. And boy, what's going on in America? It's Vincent Jason, Save the Nation. Uh, three other white men and, and killing two right. of them. Uh, explain how you think there's a racial dimension to this well, case. Well, as I said, Jake, I think things are a lot better in this country than they were a year ago. And in order to do that, we got to own the supply chain and we got to make stuff in America. Vincent Jason, Save the Nation is brought to you by Gold Co. Hey guys, welcome back to Vincent Jason Save the Nation. We're back here uh, having a discussion as we normally do about what's going on in our country because we love it. Uh, one thing that's been going on, of course, is the trial up in Kenosha. So uh, Vince, what's going on up there? Well, as we're speaking and recording this morning, Jason, we see the judge has dropped the uh, weapons charge against uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. As we understand it, although he was in possession of a gun, under the age of 18 in Wisconsin. It turns out that the length of the weapon he was carrying was permitted. If you're under 18, there are some exceptions and that that AR-15 uh, was allowed to be carried by Kyle Rittenhouse. So that charge thrown out. We will see what happens now as it heads to the jury as they consider the rest of these charges. Um, a, lot, a lot of stuff's really developing this morning. So without getting too much into the details of the case, because things, things could obviously change by the time the public gets to see our conversation, Let's just focus on what happened this weekend. Congresswoman Karen Bass of California was on TV. She was talking to CNN's Jake Tapper about the Rittenhouse trial, and she suggested uh, that race was a huge factor in the trial. Take a look at her comments. Kyle Rittenhouse is a white man who's accused of shooting and uh, uh, three other white men and, and killing two right. of them. Uh, explain how you think there's a racial dimension to this well, case. Well, be, be, because remember now, where were those white men that were killed? They were at a protest, protesting in solidarity for black folks. So to me, it was reminiscent of the civil rights movement when you had young white people that participated in the sit-ins and the protests, and they were subject to beatings, they were subjects to shootings. Many of them were killed as well. And it's as though the judge is taking that very lightly. Remember the judge... In, Rittenhouse case said you couldn't even refer to the people that were killed as victims. You could refer to them as rioters. Here you have a 17-year-old boy who was driven by his mother across state lines with an automatic weapon. Frankly, she should have been detained for child endangerment to go to a protest where he says he's going to help the police. I mean, it was ridiculous. He walks across with his automatic weapon and the police just look at him. All right. Congresswoman Karen Bass, she says race is essential to this. Uh, I think she got a couple of the details wrong, actually, in assessing yeah. the case. Um, it was a semi-automatic rifle, not an automatic weapon. Common mistake, uh, but sloppy. I mean, it matters when legislators say something like that because, you know, they get to write the law. So it is it is worthwhile that they know the details. Uh, also, he didn't transport the gun across state lines. The, the gun remained in Wisconsin with a friend. That's where he uh, ended up picking it up. Um but assess, if you will, the, the kind of the racial component that she has brought up and whether or not you think it has validity. So, you know, one the first thing that kind of comes to my mind, honestly, I, I do think it's interesting that we, um, some of the contradictions in our law altogether when, um, and, and I'm not making an argument about 
you know, the eligibility to vote. But I will say it's interesting that we trust 17-year-olds to hold deadly weapons in public, uh, but we don't trust them to cast a ballot. Um, we trust them to drive cars, you know, which, you know, automobile accidents are a major cause of death in our country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we don't trust them to cast a ballot. We'll put I was just them, thinking we'll about send them the to war or, and fight a war. Uh -huh. They can't have a drink of alcohol. Like I was just know? thinking about when you said that, I was just thinking back to being 16 and driving and thinking, God, I would not trust. <laughs> I don't right. trust my I don't trust 16 year old Vince to be driving. I, I remember <laughs> right. what that was like. Well, I, I you know, I, I, I agree with you. I don't trust 16 year old of Vince or Jason to be driving a, a car. And I certainly don't trust them with guns, to be honest with you, you know, outside of the supervision of an adult. Um, and Kyle Rittenhouse was certainly left alone, which is one of my, my biggest problems with this was the, the irresponsibility of the adults involved. And that's one place where I agree with Karen Bass is that I think that the adults really dropped the ball. Um, I certainly would not leave my 16 or 17 year old son out there in the middle of a, of a circumstance and a place that is experiencing high emotion and, uh, you know, an uprising, basically. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's not a place where I would drop my 16-year-old son, give him a, you know, allow him for him to carry a weapon and say, go, go ahead, do what you can and, you know, render aid and protect businesses. That's not your job. You know, that's that's what we have police for. Um, and, you know, things uh, go wrong. That's why people have insurance. I mean, there's a whole lot of things um, that, you know, we have in place as a society uh, to avoid having vigilantes go around with with guns, um, particularly ones that don't necessarily have the emotional and in, uh, intelligence and the emotional maturity to know how to handle certain situations. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that her comparison to the civil rights movement, the Viola Liuzos, the uh, James, Reverend James Rabb, uh, you know, the other white people who lost their lives, of course, uh, Schwerner and Goodman. I don't think that that comparison is apt here. Um, I think there are situations you know, if you want to talk about Heather Heyer and some other situations where uh, there have been violent right-wing extremists and people have lost their lives, white people have lost their lives, where I think that comparison might make sense, but not necessarily in this one. But there is a racial dimension to all of this. Um, and, I, and I think what Karen Bass could have said was how the police who actually interacted with these young people and could probably see that Kyle Rittenhouse was a very young man, a young boy. I mean, I, I think it was good. I was glad that Karen Bass corrected Jake Tapper, who called him a man. He's not a man. You know, he wasn't a man. He was a boy. Um, and the police just kind of, you know, saw these people out there with weapons in a place with high emotion, uh, breaking curfew breaking curfew and we're like hey thanks for helping us out i mean that was to me just absurd um i think what also what frustrates a lot of people of color um is the amount of empathy that goes to young white defendants uh and how self-defense seems to be reserved for these 
young white defendants. Um, but the same doesn't go for black people in similar situations. Now, for example, of course, Trayvon Martin, you know, who defended himself, the same people who are shedding tears for Rittenhouse called Trayvon Martin a thug for defending himself in a situation where he was being stalked. Um, and it, it seems like maybe if, if, if race isn't a, a factor in this, you know, then maybe Trayvon Martin needed a gun. Maybe if Trayvon, 17 year old Trayvon Martin was walking with an AR-15 and it shot George Zimmerman first, maybe the right would have some empathy or maybe there is a racial element to this. Could be. I mean, that that particular comparison is an uneven one for a bunch of reasons. One is uh, Trayvon, as far as I know, was actually the first person to make it physical when he, he attacked George Zimmerman. He was banging his head against the ground uh, and then Zimmerman pulled a gun and shot him. Um, that, I mean... I, I would agree if there was a good example, and it may, it may be obviously There, there are many. I'm just using Trayvon Martin. And I think when you are being followed and stalked, yeah, yeah. you have a right to defend yourself. If my, if my daughter was being followed while she walked home, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. And it got physical and she knocked the person out. I would say, look, that's self-defense. She was being uh -huh. followed and stalked. He got out of, he followed him with his car and then got out of the car. And he was not a police officer. There was no, there weren't blue lights or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think one of the things, you know, if you want to say that the, you know, none of these comparisons that, as you and I have talked about a bunch of times right. are completely perfect. But what I will say is the rush to call him a thug and to call him violent and the hateful things that came from the right and the zero amount of empathy for Trayvon and his family. That's what I'm talking about. If you wanna say, well, it's a little murkier, I can get that, but that's not what happened. They talked about, he smoked weed, he got in fights in school, he, you know, he drank lean at some point. Uh, they put up fake pictures on the internet mm -hmm. and said it was him. You know, those are the kinds of things that happen to black teenagers, you know, uh, when they, you know, when something like this happens, but Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, got has gotten an outpouring of support. And that I'll also just state a statistic that I read that I thought was pretty interesting. And that is a white civilian shooter who kills a black victim is 350% more likely to be found justified than if the same shooter had killed a white victim. Now, of course, Kyle Rittenhouse's victims are white. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's a little bit different, but we see a difference in, in the way uh, there is society has empathy for black people and black victims and black people who defend themselves. But that, that piece um, of data, that piece of data doesn't. Right. Should, and I, I'm not directly, uh, this is, this is, I'm making a larger point. I'm not yeah, talking yeah, I about got Kyle Rittenhouse. It. I got it. I just, I just think it's important that that data be contextualized is it, it it needs to be adjusted for how often the person that they were engaging was actually threatening their life or, or right i mean doesn't like so just an, an even piece of data like that where you just are like well in the court system over time 
a white person shooting a black person is more likely to be considered justified than a white person shooting a white person, right? That was basically the data point. Essentially, yeah. So, but like, we don't know anything about any of the underlying exchange, right? Like what happened? <laughs> like what, what led to that moment that a jury might conclude that? I'm willing, by the way, I'm willing to believe, and especially over the long stretch of time, if we're talking about the length of American history, I'm sure there's plenty of evidence that's based in, entirely on the race of the people who were involved. Mm -hmm. But I mean, in modern America, in the, the 21st century, it does seem relevant, like what was the underlying activity going on that would justify somebody being able to say, okay, yeah, that, that was a justified shooting. Yeah, sure. I mean, there, there are uh, a lot of, you know, in no two cases are the same. And, sure. and we, you know, I, I will certainly concede that um, when we go out and talk about these and we gather these, these kind of data points and, and statistics, yeah. uh, no two cases are the same. Um, but I do think overall, particularly when it's that egregious, we're not talking about 10% or 5% or 17%, 350%. That is when it starts to be like, well, there's probably a pattern here. And I think one of the things that many people of color fear with the Rittenhouse case in particular is not an issue about Kyle Rittenhouse. First of all, most people of color that I know And that's, you know, I don't know everybody, you know, I don't have everybody's number. Um, tree or something. Right. Right. Uh, you know, but one thing <laughs> that I will say out of, out of my limited sample size is that most of them are not really invested in the Kyle Rittenhouse outcome one way or the other. Right. Um, they get frustrated because they think that the same uh, form of justice that we have two justice systems, but they're not really invested in it. Um, the one fear that they have is that the Kyle Rittenhouses of the world are going to encourage um, the, uh, I've forgotten their names, the ones in Georgia with Ahmad Arbery. McMichael. The McMichael. The McMichaels where people try to take the law into their own hands and it's going to cause a rise in white vigilanteism and all of their biases are going to come into that, which put people of color in danger. So I think well, that, there's that a huge is problem. the big concern. There's obviously, you know, you talk about vigilantism and the, um, and, and really that's a symptom of uh, law enforcement abandoning communities or communities being abandoned to crime in some capacity. So what, just as a social science question, what happens when your neighborhood becomes more dangerous? Well, you have a couple options. You move out, um, you know, you persevere and suffer, or you, sometimes you take law enforcement into your own hands. That's one of the things. And that's just, a, this is a very obvious social science equation. And so if we want to discourage vigilantism, we need the, the people who are tasked with that job to actually do it and to keep these communities safe. Because, you know, you look at, you kind of, you mentioned a couple of interesting cases. One is like, you know, George Zimmerman acting as, um, uh, uh, what did they call them? The um, community watch, like that in, in taking a very overzealous uh, impression of what that is, should mean and how to, and how to function. Um, then you've got, you know, the, these, this McMichael's case, Armand Arbery, which, um, seems to be predicated on a bunch of um, false things about Amon Arbery and what he was doing. 
in the in, in the words of the defendant captured on camera in that trial. And then you've got Kyle Rittenhouse kind of like walking through the streets of Kenosha, Wisconsin, trying to act as medic. He claims he was carrying the gun for his own protection. Uh, and then in the end, it looks like he did use the gun for his own protection uh, several times. And then you think of guys like David Dorn in St. Louis, you know, retired cop, his buddy's place is being burglarized in the midst of the riots going on in St. Louis last year. And he goes to respond to the alarm and he's gunned down in the street. Uh, and, and so I'm not saying this goes kind of back to the point you were making. Not all these cases are anywhere near the same. Some of them are seem completely justified. Others don't. But uh, that said, you know, you, there's, there's a lot that's often said about Martin Luther King's quote that a riot is the language of the unheard. Um, and that's, it's a great quote because it's really, it's descriptive. It's not, it's not a prescription. It's not Martin Luther King encouraging people to riot. It's him explaining that riots occur when people get desperate. Um, and I would say the same thing is true with vigilantism, actually. V vigilantism is the language of the unprotected. So what you see is people will take up the protection of their own communities when they feel that their communities aren't being protected at all. And some people, you know, I, as far as like, let me just dismiss the Ahmad Arbery case because it's the details are murky enough. And that case seems like they murdered that guy, at least based on the available facts that's right now. Um, but a guy like David Dorn, a guy like Kyle Rittenhouse, it just seems to me that these are communities that were, have, have been abandoned to such unsafe natures that people decide to take up arms in order to protect those communities on their own. And so, so we, we shouldn't do that. I, we shouldn't I, be I, in that situation. I will uh, agree and disagree. There was no evidence really that Zimmerman's community was particularly unsafe. There was, right. and Kenosha was not Rittenhouse's community. He lived in another state. That wasn't his community. He wasn't, that wasn't his neighborhood. He wasn't patrolling his own neighborhood. He was going to someone else's community and making assumptions about that community. Yes, that community did have a moment. And again, I agree with you that uh, a riot is, is the language of the, of the unheard. Um, is another one of Dr. King's quotes that's taken completely out of context. Mm. It's just like, uh, you know, the content of character, you know, uh, quote. And, you know, all, all of the quotes that get taken out of context, particularly by people who haven't actually read Dr. King's books. He's written books. You know, he wrote a book right before he died. But people don't read those because they like taking him out of context. And, and you know, I can show people quotes, you know, that make it clear that Dr. King was at the very least social democratic. If not, you know, uh, he said he was very socialistic in his, in his economic thinking. And there's a whole lot that we can say about Dr. King mm -hmm. and the fact that Dr. King was not popular with white people by the time he died. You know, around the time of his death, he was extremely unpopular. So this idea that everybody loved Dr. King and they were all with him and everybody marched with him, that all of that is untrue. Um, that's right. But, but taking that, um, you know, putting that aside, the thing about, like I said, with Rittenhouse, that wasn't his community. And again, uh, I also, and again, you, you know, I'm usually anti-hypotheticals, but 
you remember this group and, and they're actually in a whole lot of legal trouble now um, when I don't think that they ever fired their guns to my knowledge. Um, but there was a group called the NFAC or something. It was the not effing around coalition or something. No, I don't, not off the top of my head. What, what, yeah, what so were they, they up to? They were like a, a black, an armed black group that, you know, went to a, a, a couple of daytime protests and they carried their arms. Uh-huh. They, but they informed police, you know, ahead of time, uh, you know, it was totally legal. It wasn't just them walking around, you know, they, they, they did all that and they did it during the daytime and they didn't do it during, you know, uh, an uprising. Do you remember what region of the country this was in? Louisville. Okay. Louisville, Kentucky. And it was after the, um, I will say murder, but shooting of Breonna Taylor. Um, in which Daniel Cameron was incredibly dishonest in the way he handled that case. The attorney general of Kentucky. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so the big issue uh, with, with them, again, uh, I wonder what would have happened if they were roaming the streets of Baltimore in 2015 with, with their weapons when there was an uprising or, or even in Kenosha or any, any of these areas, how the police would have reacted to that mm. um, versus, you know, Rittenhouse and his friends. W- would they have been high-fived and, they, and would the police have said, hey, we're really happy that you're here. We really appreciate it. Um, mm. Or would that have, they have been at the very least monitored very closely? Um, so I, I, I often wonder that, you know, we know with other black armed groups, uh, the police and the FBI have acted very, very harshly, um, with those black armed groups. So I, I always wonder, you know, how that would happen and how it would play out today. You know, um, I, I just, I just pulled this up just cause, um, I was reminded of it as you were talking about it. Last year, this scenario, this exact scenario did play out, actually. Um, a headline from Fox here, Black activists in Minnesota say they're armed to protect Black-owned businesses. And uh, they were seen arming themselves, this is uh, just before June 1st, um, to protect local businesses amid the looting and rioting following the death of George Floyd last week. Uh, and there was a video that went viral on Twitter, Twitter that showed that civilians were captured, presumably Black civilians here, were captured holding semi-automatic rifles outside of a local business in St. Paul, where Floyd had died in police custody. Uh, they said things like, run up here and see what happens. You see that? Black owned. A person recording the video was heard saying as he highlighted the locally owned business, run up in this bitch or my mama, we're going to do that to your, your ass. So um, uh, anyway, the, the point is like, there have actually been some cases, at least in the last year, where this was happening. I was remembering there's some viral videos, basically black, armed black citizens protecting black owned businesses um, during the riots last year. And uh, they were allowed to. I mean, they were, as far as I know, were not hassled by uh, authorities for doing that. Yeah, I, I, well, particularly if you if you own the business. And, and again, I, I don't encourage um, I don't encourage vigilante behavior. For anyone, but I, I do believe you have the right to protect, particularly your home. Yeah. But a- absolutely, uh, you know, I'm I'm in favor of that. If you want to protect your home, 
You know, uh, I think you and I both agree with that. Um, I think it gets a little more dangerous when you start going into other people's communities, you know, with your guns saying, hey, I'm going to protect this business. Sometimes without necessarily the uh, the agreement, you know, there's debate in the Rittenhouse case whether the owner of the business wanted Rittenhouse and his companions to actually protect the business. Mm-hmm. Rittenhouse says yes. The, the owner of the business says no. Um, so it depends on who you believe. But, you know, I, 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 if I own a business and I didn't ask you to be there and you're coming from out of town and saying you're going to protect my business, I don't, you know, I, I think that that's a recipe for disaster. That can make, that can make things escalate. You know, that escalates the situation. Um, and again, with Rittenhouse in particular, my biggest problem was the adults that brought him there mm-hmm. and the adults that left him alone there. Um, I think that those are the people, uh, if, if anyone is really responsible, those are the people who are responsible. All right, moving on to the next topic here. Are things better in the United States of America than they were a year ago? Well, the White House has a political interest in the answer to that question. Let's see what White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain had to say this weekend. Well, look, I do think, as I said, Jake, I think things are a lot better in this country than they were a year ago with regard to COVID, with regard to the economy. But we have a lot of work left to do. And I think voters are in a show me, don't tell me mode. I don't think they really care as much about what I'm saying on TV or what you're saying on TV as much as they do about us putting results uh, into their lives. Uh, This bill the president's going to sign on Monday, uh, the infrastructure bill, I think is a big step forward in terms of dealing with a lot of the longstanding issues in this country. And I think the Build Back Better bill, which we hope the House will vote on, scheduled to vote on this coming week when they get back from Veterans Day recess, is another thing. Okay, Jason. Economically, are we better off than we were a year ago? I think largely, yes. Um, no, and I, I think Ron Klain is correct. We have a lot of work to do. Of course, we have rising inflation, and that is a concern. And um, it, it's really going to take getting out of this pandemic and also you know, these supply chain issues, which really aren't the fault of Democrats or Republicans. It's kind of a global issue. But uh, I think, you know, we are in a much better place than we were in October 2020, just, you know, generally with our lives, I think we're just in a better place. You know, uh, we're freer, people are moving around, people are able to go places that you weren't able to do in 2020. Maybe people have forgotten what 2020 was like, but that was a terrible time in American history. And then you, you look at the, the economic statistics, we're at what, 4.6% unemployment. Uh, We were at about 7% unemployment in October of 2020. Um, I think we're, we're, you know, doing much better. We're adding more and more jobs. Um, I know that everybody likes to be doom and gloom and they find something to be upset about. You know, of course, gas prices are an issue. Inflation is an issue. Uh, That's, that's without question. And those are issues that need to be worked out. And in according to Janet Yellen, uh, inflation really won't go down until uh, the middle of 2022, when hopefully we were, are really peaking out on the other side of the pandemic. But, you know, to compare October of this year, or, you know, November, I'm, I'm looking at the, the economic statistics from October. 
October of this year to October 2020 and the quality of life that the average American has, I think, you know, saying that it's worse now is, you know, I, I don't know where you were in October 2020, but, you know, uh, I think we're in a much better place right now. Well, it, there are, by a couple of measures, things are worse economically. You mentioned inflation. Um, that inflation has outpaced the rise in wages. So people are poorer now than they were in October of 2020. That's just true. I mean, in terms of their, the ability of their dollar to purchase things has gone down um, dr pretty dramatically. Um, that rise in fuel costs, not a small thing. That's 50%, uh, over 50% up since this time last year. Uh, in terms of fuel yeah. prices growing. And so but the people impact... are driving less too. That's the other thing is uh, a lot of people, one of the big changes in 2020 was a lot of people are working virtually. Um, there, so there are many people who those rising fuel costs would not or does not affect them the way it did um, maybe in 2019. That's true. Although those people are probably going to be more affluent on, on average than the people who are at the hardest where they don't have the option to work from home in order to do those jobs. That, that is true. But there's there's also, again, um, you know, public transportation is, is opened up. You know, it's not like, you know, when the subways were shut down. I don't know if that was the case in October of 2020. Uh -huh. yeah. But, you know, people are able to use uh, public transportation again. Um, I think we're, you know, even still, and a lot of the, the poorest people, you know, that I know don't have cars, you know, they're not driving around everywhere. So, right, but, you know, a lot of them are using public transportation. Yes, yes. And that and that that helps, especially if you're in an urban area or right. a suburban area, which has connections to public transportation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, but the other part of it is like fuel prices themselves are not really only for car owners, obviously, and sure. people who heat their homes. Absolutely. With um, with this fuel, which of course is going up, they project by at least 50% for this winter, meaning home heating costs are going to go up pretty dramatically. Um, that's a big deal. That's a huge deal, actually, for in an environment where rents have become much more expensive or more, uh, and housing has become much more limited. And now you add on top of that, the cost of the energy price to, to heat that home. And finally, you know, fuel goes into everything. Fuel is the price of, of goods that are delivered to your house, the, the cost to get them there. Um, has gone up. And so as a result, you absorb those costs as the consumer. So when the gas costs more um, to ship that product, you pay more. Also, petroleum is the foundation for most of the American economy's products. So if you have something that's plastic or polyester or any of these, if, you, if you're wearing a North Face jacket, it's made of petroleum. So all of these things require petroleum products and they've become uh, dramatically more expensive. And that's, that's where people feel things in, on an inflationary basis. And I'll just say one last thing. On this issue of Biden's culpability uh, in terms of inflation, you're right. There's a, a global supply chain issue that is absolutely affecting us. Uh, and COVID uh, and the associated shutdowns have created some staggering impacts on the global economy. But Joe Biden himself said this very this past week in Baltimore when he gave a speech out there in the port of Baltimore that um, that the March coronavirus relief package, the $1.9 trillion that was passed, had the impact of creating um, staggering delays to the supply chain because of how much money was sent out the door. Now, this was a package that was mostly unnecessary in terms of um, the coronavirus relief because there was a $1 trillion surplus from the prior relief packages still out there. 
uh, in the states. But the federal government, Democrats controlling Congress and Joe Biden, passed that package in March, sending out you know check after check after check. It's all the you know the payments for children and the direct payments, and it flooded the American economy with cash that the Federal Reserve printed. And when you add trillions of dollars of cash to an economy, that creates tremendous inflationary pressures and creates the kind some of the shortages that we've seen. And Joe Biden said as much this right. past week. Uh, right. So I, I do think the government has had a meaningful hand here in the, the economic shortages that we're experiencing. Well, there, there, is an under, there was an understanding that this was going to cause inflation. The, the projections were that the inflation would be temporary. And they're still projecting that, but it's lasted longer because of the lack of vaccination and many people getting sick from COVID and other waves of COVID uh, that have uh, hurt our economy and made this inflationary pressure last longer than perhaps it, it could have. Now, the other thing is when you say that people are poorer than they yeah. were a year ago, yeah, that is, that's, that's true and not the whole story. One of the things that you pointed out that I think is really important is uh, the COVID relief gave a lot of people a lot of cash. So this is one of the reasons why people have talked about, uh, you know, employment shortages, you know, people not wanting to go to work is because now lots of Americans have a whole lot more money saved. So this idea that they're poor is not exactly true when they've actually been given uh, lots of money. Now that causes inflationary pressure. You're absolutely correct about that. And that, you know, that's undeniable, undebatable. Uh, and the idea again, as I said, is that that inflationary pressure will be temporary. And I, and I still believe that it will be, but it's lasting longer than, than we expected because the pandemic is lasting longer than we expected. But this idea that Americans are poorer is a little bit more complicated than that because, you know, many people aren't going back to low wage jobs because they're like, you know, I have a little bit of money saved up to sustain myself. Maybe I want to go to school. Maybe I want to try something else. You know, I don't want to be stuck in this job that I consider to be dead end. Um, so Americans are not necessarily poor. And there's also like, you know, with the, the child credits, that people that families are getting, uh -huh. um, you know, Americans aren't necessarily poorer than they were a year ago, um, and I think that there are a lot of good signs with our economy. There are some challenges, as you stated, but that's that's American life. That's but human life. That we're that unemployment rate that you mentioned before that uh, is down below five percent right now, which under normal circumstances you would say below five percent is full employment, right? Yeah, that's that's where you that's four point six. Yeah. That's what you would normally assess, but and job big, growth. But here's here's the big issue though. There's all these jobs available mm -hmm. that people aren't taking, and the reason the unemployment rate has gone down is because people have left the workforce. They've left looking for gigs entirely, and that all that's all that all has inflationary pressure. So if you have mm -hmm. fewer people actually doing labor in the market then you have fewer goods being produced, fewer services being produced. It makes those services more expensive because the demand for those services and goods outpaces the supply. These are, you know, I'm not, I'm not some, you know, <laughs> some trained economist. These are just basic concepts that at least that I can understand. Uh, and so everything becomes more expensive. And I just, 
I wonder if any of this, and I have actually I don't know your views on universal basic income as it's called, but basically where the government cuts checks on a monthly basis to people of a certain, maybe of a certain income range or, or a certain amount of poverty, whatever the number is, or to everybody as uh, Andrew Yang was advancing. Um, what has has any of this like kind of like sort of big government involvement in the individual lives of people in terms of just like sending checks out has met any of it made you rethink any of your priors like have you like i'll be honest like during the pandemic i i definitely i was very open-minded about the role that the government should play during the shutdowns because i was like i i guess people are being so paralyzed by these shutdowns that maybe the government should send back some of their own money so that they can just get through it, right? That's kind of my, was my thought process, but I, I could feel sort of the debate within myself about like, I don't know if this is good. I just don't know if it's good for the American economy. And especially this March package, I was kind of generally kind of open-minded about it. Like, I guess, I mean, these shutdowns kind of justify that Americans are owed, you know, some sort of recourse for how staggered their lives have become. But boy, Jason, as, as the months wear on, it feels like the government's involvement has made things worse. And I don't know if you think the same thing, or but I'm interested in your thoughts about that. Yeah, I, I don't think that it's made things worse. Um, I was never a fan of UBI uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, I, I think one of the big issues, you know, as someone who studies this from an African-American perspective, um, the issue isn't income as much as it is wealth. Yes, there is income inequality and, and for, for poor people, African-Americans are more likely to be among the poor. And um, there is income inequality. But I think one of the, the, the mistakes that many people, I remember debating this guy and he said, income creates wealth. And I'm like, no, that's not how it works. There are wealth generating assets. And I think if there's anything that the government should give or, or you know, if they're going to provide poor people with something that's going to make their lives better and change the trajectory of their families, it's not giving them a thousand dollars a month. You know what I mean? It's you know, give you know, providing them with wealth generating assets. This is why you have a four hundred one k at your job, or or you know, it's stocks, bonds, and real estate. Those are the wealth generating assets. And so I thought UBI was you know, was not necessarily something that was going to be effective in the ways that a lot of people thought it was. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, I think under the, the circumstances of the pandemic, particularly when we're talking about people uh, who were frontline workers, who all of a sudden, or, or not even the frontline workers, people who are, who are blue collar workers who are going to be out of work. Right. And that's across the board. That's people in rural areas. That's your contractor. That's, you know, all of that stuff that was getting shut down. Um, you know, they needed to put food on the table at that moment. You know what I mean? And the government, one of the things that the, the government is supposed to do is not necessarily step in on everything, but it is when people need help and need the support of the government, that is when the government is supposed to step in. And, and one of the things, even Donald Trump was disappointed when they came to this agreement um, for relief. Uh, you know, I, I think it was, it might've been in December. I can't remember when the, the last relief package came through 
or maybe it was October. I think it might have been right mm-hmm. before the election. But he and thought it fell short. He thought it fell short. He wanted more money. Right. You know, right. He wanted no, to insert that's right. more money into the economy. That's right. So, so I, you know, and I think there was broad consensus on the left and the right because again, I guess- the right isn't isn't the, the Republicans of old. They're just kind of they've changed. But there, you know, I think that there are times when people need help. I guess my got- question is, is did we learn anything from it? Right. I, I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that's why bipartisan um, coalitions were supportive, especially last year of the relief packages. But like, for instance, like the extended unemployment experiment, boy, it really revealed the extent to which government doing something where it thinks it's helping can actually put a damper on the American economy. Uh, and I, you know, I, I thought that that was a really important lesson that I hope Washington learned something from by like constantly, you know, firing money out of a helicopter and maintaining unemployment rolls for as long as we did. It had a real impact on the economy. It hurt things pretty dramatically. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, the, the last thing that I read about that, excuse me there. Um, last thing I read about that was that those unemployment benefits. So the, the, the states that cut those unemployment benefits, right. Didn't really have better outcomes, you know, in terms of, you know, improving uh, the job landscape than did states that maintain them, you know, the, the extra $300 or whatever it was. Um, so it wasn't necessarily that you were getting better better outcomes or there was a dramatic difference between the states that cut off the benefits and the states that maintain them. So I, I'm not I've so seen, sure that that was so mm-hmm. as prob- problematic as, you know, as you're, as you're stating. Gotcha. I, I've seen differently. The Texas Public Policy Foundation had a study on this and it was based on like two, two points. One was the states that got rid of the bonus unemployment benefits that you're referring to that the federal government was sending out as well as the fact that states started bringing back work requirements, like meaning you had to actually be searching for a job. Um, and, um, and that the impact was that the states that got rid of those extended unemployment benefits sooner saw their unemployment be- uh, rates contract more quickly than the states that continued to keep the extended unemployment going. Um, but I just think that like, I, all I'm saying is that there are lessons here. Like we did major things with the American economy and the government's involvement in it. And if we don't derive any lessons from it, we've wasted trillions of dollars without getting a clear, we should get a clear picture of like, hey, what's something we should do again in the future and what's something we shouldn't do. Uh, and unfortunately, it's to, as usual, I don't think Washington's like spending much time doing a postmortem to learn the lessons from all of this. Yeah, um, one place where we're always gonna agree is that Washington doesn't learn lessons very easily. That's so. right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that that's a place of agreement between Vince and Jason. Okay, good. All right. Well, in the meantime, I should tell you, Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Gold Co. Okay, let's take a look at a guy who you really like, Jocko Willink, was on Fox News. And uh, he was talking about what we can do to win an economic war globally. Take a look. Why get all bunched up over a bunch of stuff sitting off the California coast? We should have been buying stuff from America all along. We make the best stuff. 
Yeah, we sure do. And, you know, General Pershing said that infantry wins battles and logistics wins wars. And I spent the first part of my life fighting those battles in the military, and now I'm out of, of the military, and I'm trying to take our fight to our communist adversaries through the economic wars. And in order to do that, we got to own the supply chain and we got to make stuff in America. And that's what you're doing. And in many cases, you guys, as we just saw it at your plant up in Maine, you're, you're doing it one sewing machine at a time. Yes, indeed. We've literally bought machines from overseas and brought them back to America. It's one machine at a time and it's one job at a time. Those machines don't work themselves. We got this great American workforce that's up there making these things happen. Uh, I was looking at your website and folks should check it out. It is originmain.com. Uh, and you've, you've got a lot of stuff uh, that you're selling. Uh, Jocko Fuel, Jocko Greens, Jocko Discipline. Um, compression clothes, uh, fitness stuff. I just ordered a rash guard uh, for over Christmas. Your prices are competitive with stuff that people are buying from overseas. So why not support America? Yeah, and I'm basically, Steve, trying to make everything that I use myself, I'm trying to make in America so we can offer people those products. And we're making the highest quality stuff. And yes, the price is competitive because we've got great people, we've got lean manufacturing, and we've got people that know what they're doing. Can you do me a favor? Can you guys start making computer chips? Because we need them for the cars, <laughs> we need them for the iPhones, and we don't have enough of them because we've got to wait, wait for them to make them in China and then bring them back over here. Give us a couple more years. You got to remember the American worker is capable of anything and we will continue to grow and we will continue to win back the economic war. All right. The American economy would be improved by having more products made in America. True or false? Uh, so true with a but. I think that's, uh, that's a really simplistic way of, of looking at things. There are certain things that, um, you know, we need to get from overseas. And I also found it kind of ironic. He's like, we bought the best sewing machines from overseas. <laughs> they don't make any sewing machines in the United States. Uh, he couldn't find a company to, to make a sewing machine here, here in the US. Um, what are the but, sewing machine makers these days? I remember the Singer sewing machine. Where was Singer made? Um, that, was, that was a big one. Singer sewing and embroidery machines. Where are they made? I'm going to tell you right now. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear that. You know? Where are those Singer sewing machines made? Um, they're based in Tennessee near Nashville. Their first large factory for mass production built in 1863 in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Um, all right, you keep telling me your thoughts on this. I'm going to figure out where the heck they're made. Yeah, I was oh, gonna it's, oh, it's manufactured in Vietnam. Oh, they're based okay. in Tennessee. That's where the product is now warehoused, but they're man manufactured in Vietnam. Yeah, but it sounded as though he ordered them from an overseas company. Gotcha. That didn't it? I, I don't, I'm, I'm asking. Yeah, that's, it, that's what it, it, sounded it like did to sound me. like that. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah. and I guess the rationale is like, okay, look, the the beginning of this supply chain, I got to order this uh, these capital expenditures. I've got to get the goods in so I can actually manufacture them. But now, from now on, everything basically is being manufactured right here in the United States. All the yeah. stuff that they make with those sewing machines. I, I like I like Jocko. Um, I do, you know, and I, I I sometimes laugh at like the fact that like any the answer to everything is jujitsu for him. <laughs> it's like you need to train jujitsu. Um, He's probably right. Yeah, I was like, you know, I'm trying to be a better father or something, be a better husband. He's like, train jujitsu. 
<laughs> um, but no, I, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of, of Jocko. And I think a, lo a lot of what he says about discipline is great. You know, like I've actually taken some things from him and his ideas about like being a disciplined person and discipline being freedom. I yeah. agree with him there. Mm -hmm. um, I think things are a little more complicated than the way he's stating it. But the idea that, um, you know, it would make things a lot easier, you know, in terms of, you know, some of these, uh, a future issue with supply chain, that it would make it easier if we made things in the United States. Of course, I think that's yeah. absolutely correct. I mean, we learned how vulnerable we were last year. I think the American public really got an eye-opening experience during the pandemic about how vulnerable we are in terms yeah. of our supply chains. Like, well, I, like, like our medicine is like yeah. made overwhelmingly in Asia. Um, yeah. You've got, you know, the supply chains themselves that are dependent on China. The kind of the, the impact of the Trump administration, all the tariffs was not to reshore a lot of American manufacturing, but to nearshore it or to move it to other states and in, in other countries in Asia, Singapore, Vietnam, uh, which is good in a way in terms of our, com our fight against the communist regime in China. But, uh, but still, it's not, it's not what we need. It's not just about the American economy. It's about American labor and American families and American flourishing and American towns. Like that's, that's the key ingredient here. And so getting, um, firing up these towns and having them producing these goods, it's, it's a national security. It should be a national security priority. It's, it's, it's good for the country. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, First of all, I, I agree. Um, China, one of the things that China does is, of course, they find American trademarks and then they make those products in China. Yeah. You know, they, they steal the, the intellectual property. Right. And there's really no way to punish them. Um, and, you know, they, you know, they make an iPhone in China or whatever it is that we make here in the United States. We don't make iPhones, but you know, whatever it is that we produce here in the United States, they make a Chinese version that's created in China with Chinese labor in Chinese factories and sell it to Chinese people. Um, so I definitely think, and let's be clear, I still think the United States, at least from what I'm reading right now, the United States economically is in a better position than China right now um, with their, you know, in terms of looking at my my personal investments and the chinese real estate crisis have you been following that yeah it's bad and china's yeah. not bailing out these giant firms right so china i think our economy you know we always of course it's kind of like when your parents used to say you know there's starving kids in africa yeah. who would love that food mm -hmm. like china china's economy is in probably a worse position than we are here in the United States. You know, States. just while we're on the issue, I was talking to Gordon Chang recently, who is an expert on China, and he was telling me that, um, you know, it's interesting that Xi Jinping has not left the country for a while. So mm. he's, you know, the, the head of China, Xi Jinping, uh, has not actually left the country at all. And what that suggests to Gordon Chang is that uh, his hold on power is tenuous, that if he were to leave the country, he would fear that a coup may occur upon his exit, his physical exit from the country. So when you watch these um, these big meetings like on climate change and the UN stuff, Xi Jinping is not going, right. although all, the, all these other world leaders are going. And that's where Gordon Chang senses there's some weakness here. Now, in the midst of this, Xi Jinping is right now 
getting he's he's trying to uh, tighten his his uh, hold on the Communist Party. Um, they just announced that he's one of the major historical figures for the country. That was this past week. It was considered an honor that's only reserved for two other people, including Chairman Mao. Uh, and um, you know, and coming up next year, he's going to move to. Uh, he's already kind of broken through the the barrier on term limits, but he intends to try and secure another term by um, getting the Chinese Communist Party to fall in line. Uh, so some interesting crap is going on. And in fact, today he's having his first so-called face-to-face meeting with Joe Biden. They're doing it over video chat. Yeah, yeah, it's a video. And, <laughs> and um, a video summit. Something super interesting is going on with China right now. Yeah, no, I, I had no idea about this, this idea that there could be a coup. And you're saying it's a coup within the Communist Party. So this isn't- Well, there's people... so much economic discontent right now about what's going on in China and people are struggling under, in this economy under Xi Jinping. That, um, you know, like, look at what he's done with all of the uh, celebrities in China, all the billionaires. He's like, they're arresting people. They're telling people, like, you're not allowed to worship celebrity anymore. They're limiting the amount of time that people can play video games to two hours a weekend to, that yeah. children can play. I mean, there's, a, there's like, there's this rapid incursion on basically all distractions of any kind that keep you from right. focusing on how wonderful uh, Xi Jinping is. Well, and, I'll tell you this, uh, all of our kids could use less screen time. I, I can tell you that. <laughs> That's true, actually. It's a struggle. Yeah. yeah well, well, you know, they, they've created their own version, I believe, of Instagram, but they're only allowing children to, to use it, you know, like 30 minutes a day or whatever it is, uh, because yeah. they don't want their children to be subject to what American children are, which is depression, addiction to fantasy, all of the things that... Uh, really are depressing a lot of American kids. So I, I don't think that this is an edict that should come from the government. I agree with you 100%, or right. at least I think right. we agree, that you know this should be a freedom of parents to say, look, you don't get a phone, or look, you get to only watch it for this That's right. Of time. Take some damn responsibility. That's, right. It's a good point. But the impulse is correct that they have that this screen time, the social media, the video games are actually not healthy for our children. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it's anything that leads to your addiction um, should be avoided or, or yeah. should be moderated for sure. And addiction, makes you feel worse about yourself too. Addiction of all kinds robs you of your liberty. And for sure. you should, so you should avoid, just as a personal, like a life maxim, you should, you should try and resist addiction. And bringing it back to, to Jocko, discipline is freedom. Amen. Yeah, I completely <laughs> agree. All right, well, that's a good message to end on. Let's end there today. Uh, I, like, I like that message. Discipline is freedom. Um, all right, Jason Nichols, thank you as always. You can tune into this, this uh, broadcast in the form of a podcast by finding us wherever you can find a podcast, of course. It's called Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Like, subscribe, comment, and share on YouTube and Facebook Watch as well. Help a bigger audience see the conversation that we're having. We're, we're trying to have a productive one, unlike um, so much of the garbage that is out there. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed and that you'll come back for another one. Jason Nichols, thanks as always. Always. Thank you. Keep pounding.